Trivia and social history with absolutely no tasting notes. I'm Tim and I'm joined in the virtual pub by my drinking buddy, Larry. What are you drinking and thinking about today? Hello, I'm drinking a dark rum and coke. Mm. You are. Oh, it's so good. I haven't had a rum and coke for a long time. And what's running through your mind, dear? <sighs> Yeast. <laughs> you want to get that scene too? <laughs> Oh, oh, through my mind, sorry. Uh... Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, why? Why so? Um, because uh, I read about something this week. There's going to be potentially a Marmite shortage, and I panicked. Um, but thankfully, it was an old story. It was from May, June, during lockdown. Mm-hmm. Marmite was struggling. They didn't have enough uh, brewer's yeast to make their product. Um, um, somebody tweeted actually, it made me laugh. His exact words were, I need Marmite like oxygen. Yeah. He'd panicked. <laughs> He'd have panicked probably a bit more than I panicked, but uh, he felt the need to tweet them, which then uh, spread the word that there was a yeast shortage and Marmite stopped making all their different product sizes. They just kept one bottle and one jar size. Um, but Brewdog stepped in recently and said that they'll send brews yeast to them but uh also Carlsberg have been sending a ton of yeast to them uh so back in June Carlsberg started like producing en masse to restock the pubs for when they opened in July mm-hmm. so they obviously had a ton of brews yeast um so this year alone the Northumberland site Carlsberg site they've sent 87% of the yeast that they use to Marmite in May, they sent 40 tankers to Marmite. <laughs> it's crazy. Oh, oh I'm, I mean, I probably shouldn't say it on a podcast, but that just got me a little bit aroused. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, Mum. Because, <laughs> like, I understand this need for Marmite. You know what's funny? As, as someone of the vegan persuasion, when someone comes up with a highly original question of where do you get, you know, your vitamins and, and, and you know, how are you doing nutrition wise? Like I must look so sickly. Um, I just think, do you not eat Marmite on the scale I eat Marmite? Because if you yeah. did, you would not be worried about those B vitamins. <laughs> Even as a kid, people used to comment on how like, how much Marmite did I have on my toast. It yeah. has to be really thick. Like how people put peanut butter on their toast is how I put Marmite on mine. Good, and I'm glad it's not peanut butter in your case. I put both on, I have to say. I do I do peanut butter and Marmite. They do a peanut butter Marmite now. They do, but I just buy separate jars and do it myself because, you know, <laughs> I ain't lazy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, but I can do that. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same with the whole squeezy Marmite thing. I, I much prefer it from a jar. Oh, same. And I do find the consistency of the squeezy Marmite a little bit, like, it's more liquidy. Yeah, I agree. It's not the same consistency. I don't want it. It is not. I want a jar that I can't open that frustrates me. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be angry when you sit and eat your Marmite. Exactly. <laughs> Yeast-filled rage. And again, you want to get that scene too. Um, that's reminded me that a short while ago, you told us all... Oh, I know what's you, coming. I know yeah, what's coming. You were going to do some sort of marmite crumpet red wine combo thing it was on the episode about toasting wasn't it yeah it was so where is I it i bought i bought red wine on the weekend for it mm-hmm. but i accidentally drank the bottle of red wine <laughs> accidents will happen <laughs> um and i completely forgot to buy crumpets today so all i can offer you is just a spoon of marmite straight to the mouth which i do yeah. often anyway I'm, so. and i'm going to insist that you do it and i'm going to watch it Oh, I'm gonna have to go downstairs to get my marmite. I don't. I don't understand why you didn't bring it up with you. You knew this was gonna happen. <laughs> go, go now. 
I mean, yeah, we're, all, we're all going to okay. sit here in silence. I'm going to run will, downstairs. Or I will edit silence. silence out. I'm going to give you a running commentary. This is me running downstairs. Okay, good. Well, you know what? While you're, doing, while you're doing that, let me tell you, I upheld that bargain that you made. And uh, can you see I've got a margarita with me? I can. It looks delish. But what's it looks it like missing? lemon What's it missing? Um... Everything is missing a rimming. <laughs> <laughs> it's missing a salty rim. And um, <laughs> I thought, I know how I can replace that. Let's give it a Marmite rim. Oh. And then I looked it up and it turns out it really is a thing. You can have a, a Marmarita cocktail, which is just a margarita with a, a Marmite rim. But I thought I'd, I'd save it and do some live Marmite rimming. Um, and you can all listen. And Lyra, you can watch if you want. I would love it. I think you should live stream this live rimming. I, I mean, look. Look at this. Look oh, at this easy brown. Nothing has ever looked as appealing as Marmite smeared on the rim of a glass. And there we go. <laughs> I'm ready to taste. Um, I, I have. I've got some news that's probably going to anger you, but it's upsetting me. <laughs> You've got no Marmite. I've got no mama in the cupboard. I can't believe oh. I've, I've fulfilled on a promise you made. This is so <laughs> us. <laughs> oh, God. I can offer you a spoon of mustard. <laughs> yes, do it. I want you punished. I want to I watch your pain. All right. It's a, it's a squeezy, squeezy mustard. I'm just going to squeeze it directly into my mouth and drink some rum. Yep. Why has so this good. podcast suddenly gone frat party? <laughs> 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 this podcast will now be broadcast only on TikTok. <laughs> okay, ready? Yeah. There's not much mustard in you either. Yeah, okay. <laughs> it's just... <laughs> you just sprayed sort of mustard. You must say mustard gas. That's not right. <laughs> oh, okay, next. Got right, some pickles. We've talked about pickles in the past. Right, pickles and rum. <laughs> you're gonna, <laughs> if you're going to do that, I want the pickle in the rum. Oh, I don't want to ruin the whole thing. I'll just do a swig of pickle juice and I eat a pickle and drink okay. my rum. All right, that's, that's a callback to a previous episode as well. You can have that. Pickle yeah. juice and rum. I'm going to have my marmorita while you do that. Pickle swig straight from the jar. I'm going in. Okay. I think I'm going to do pickle jar then rum, then pickle, and then more rum, just to get a good mix. Okay, yep. All right, cheers. Okay. She's got, she's drinking directly from a jar of pickles. Oh, that's actually really nice. <laughs> she likes it, she's gone in for the rum. Works. It works, I'm it having works. a great time. It works, she's gone in for an onion. Mm. She's double fisting onions and rum now. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing, nothing about that was terrible. I think we've, we're onto something. Do you know what? My, my marmorita, delicious. I mm. highly recommend it. I've just invented the, uh, the prickle. Prickle. Mm -hmm. Pickle and rum. <laughs> mm -hmm. Delish. I think I'd call it a rum pickle. Prickle. I like prickle. Mm. I don't right, well, do that. That was... Um, Surreal. Shall we get on with the episode? <laughs> yes, please. <laughs> um, shall I tell you a bit about the beginnings of Marmite before we come back to um, breweries donating? Yes, I'm just heading back upstairs. Okay, good. So <clears throat> the precursor to Marmite, if you like, the first person who went, oh, I've just realised that you can use brewer's yeast... Um, as a food stuff. And when we say brewers yeast, we're not talking about, you know, like little packets of yeast that you'd put in to make bread at home. We're talking about the balm, the, the frothy leftover stuff on top. And um, he realized that you could concentrate it and bottle it and eat it. His name was Eustace von Leibig. Useless? Eustace. He was not, not useless. He was not. Um, in the 19th century. Remember that name though, we'll come back to it um, in a bit. Mm -hmm. So he was the first one to kind of go, yeah, you can do this. But it was in 1902 that a company was formed uh, to do this. The Marmite Food Extract Company formed in Burton-upon-Trent. Where else? Of course, because Burton's like the centre of brewing. It 
at one point it was exporting a quarter of all of Britain's beers in Staffordshire. And so Marmite was its main product and it got quite popular, the, the, you know, using this byproduct as the paste. Um, that was supplied by Bass Brewery then. Bass Brewery, mm-hmm. who have mentioned before, because they had the first trademark yep. in the UK. So five years later, it's so successful that they can open a second factory in my old neck of the woods in Camberwell, Camberwell Green in London. And one of the things I find interesting about the timing of this is because, you know, I, I just said, oh, you know, we all know that Marmite is rich in B vitamins and it's great for B vitamins and it's nutritious. And, you know, it's, well, it's the friend of many a vegetarian and vegan. Vitamins actually weren't discovered until 10 years after Marmite had been founded. So for the first 10 years, it was just, you know, purely on flavor. <laughs> but 1912 yeah. was the discovery of vitamins. And that really boosted the sales of it because all of a sudden then they could market it as this source of, you know, the newly discovered uh, B vitamin complex. Mm-hmm. And also they knew very well that it would um, treat things like beriberi, deficiency of B vitamins, which were common during World War One. Yeah. And it, it was put in ration kits that they sent out with people, um, sent out with the soldiers. So they would have some Marmites part of their rations. And it went beyond just World War One and the British Army. It's been used to treat malnutrition in a variety of places, actually. There was a scientist who discovered that folic acid was the key, um, key component of it, Lucy Willis. And she used that to treat anemia in Bombay uh, for the mill workers. Mm-hmm. And also it was used to treat malnutrition for workers in Sri Lanka during the malaria epidemic of the 1930s. So very quickly took advantage of vitamin discovery. I read when I was doing research for this podcast, I read something about Marmite being used in Sri Lanka. And it's probably off the back of what you just spoke about. Um, but they swear, they swear by it as um, a hangover cure. But hmm. the concoction sounds awful it's marmite uh dissolved with boiled water um lime juice and then a slice of onion in there as well oh yeah i'm not sure about the slice of i mean i've got marmite and lime juice right now in the form of this margarita but i wouldn't throw an onion in there for yeah the onion i think i'd rather hair of the dog to be honest (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i think you're right it probably does extend from that um that sort of cultural heritage of marmite can make you better like it can yeah. cure your cure your ills it probably does come from that i'd love to know when people started doing the whole marmite in hot water thing because that's, that's well <laughs> you know you know bovril yes as a separate i company. know that's a, like a big drink yeah and uh they were separate companies but bovril bought marmite in um the 20th century like later 20th century so I wonder if Marmite was actually put in hot water before it had become part of Bovril or whether it was like then wrapped into part of that campaign. I actually don't know. Yeah, maybe. Um, but Marmite does have other associations with boozy things, not just what we've put together or indeed the brewer's yeast. Um, mm-hmm. Have you got any examples? I have. Um, in 2007, they did a special edition Guinness Marmite. So they used 30% Guinness yeast in the Marmite, um, just to give it that Guinnessy flavour. Um, 2008, the following year, they did a Champagne limited edition. Um, although when you read into it, it's actually a bit of a gimmick. Um, they used 0.3% Champagne in with the Marmite, and it was in a limited edition jar. They changed the label to be a heart, and it said, I love you on the jar. And it was, they only made a certain amount. It was like a really limited edition and it was exclusive to Selfridges. So I think they were just targeting. Did you? Yeah, someone, someone very nice, Janine, my friend Janine, I think it was. I've said it, Mm -hmm. I've said it, put it in recording now. If it's not, that'll be embarrassing. Pretty sure, (laughs) because she's obsessed with Marmite as well, that she got me a champagne Marmite for a birthday or something once. That is a very nice thing to do. Mm. Have you still got it or did you eat it? (laughs) <laughs> of course I ate it. <laughs> I'd have kept it. No. I'd have kept it. I mean, it probably does live forever. I don't know that Marmite actually has an expiry, but um, no, I had it. <laughs> I wanted to have it. But yeah, you're right. Like, it was such a tiny amount that it was pretty imperceptible. But I think the Guinness mm-hmm. one did 
kind of yeah. did taste different. It did taste sort of stouty. They they did do another boozy one in two thousand nine as well, um, mm-hmm. which was um, Marston's Pedigree Marmite um, to celebrate the Ashes Cricket Test series. They made a limited edition Marmite there as well. Those are the only boozy ones they've done. Although they've um, like Marmite XO is like the extra strong Marmite. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if it's like a different type of yeast or it's because they um, it, brew it for four times as long, I think. Yeah, it's matured for longer. That's yeah. the difference of that one. I, I just finished the jar of that, actually. Um, so nice. It just gives it that stealthier <laughs> taste. I guess maybe that was the same with the kind of 30% Guinness yeast is the same kind of yeah. flavour. Mm. Yeah. Oh, this um, is just making me really sad that I don't have Marmite. <laughs> <laughs> you should be sad because I'm enjoying life. Um, we mentioned, well, I mentioned balm as the thing rather than what, you know, some people might picture little dried yeast that you get in, pack to, uh, um, in packets. But balm, being the froth of the beer, was often used to leaven bread. So the brewers mm-hmm. would kind of give their froth and give it over to bakers who would then use the yeast in that to, to bake their breads. And in some parts of the world, particularly the north of England, um, balm came to also mean the bread roll. So it came to mean like, you know, mm-hmm. you might call it a bap or a cob or, I don't know, do you have some weird other term for it in Wales? Um, no, we don't. I think it's just a roll. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you disappoint me. <laughs> I wanted something weird. Um, make one up. Make one something that sounds like it might be a Welsh word for bread roll. Oh, pudin. <laughs> you say, you say, <laughs> I can't. You say it's, that gave me a really specific flashback to something, but I can't remember what it was. It's someone saying think, pudding, but really weird. Yeah. David Williams in Spaced. Spaced, yeah. It's David Williams in Spaced where he's doing doing like avant-garde performance piece. Do you know what else that's giving me a flashback to? It's another drinking (laughs) occasion. Yeah, go on. I'm worried, but go on. (laughs) Do you you not know what I'm going to say? I think you're going to talk about a lemon posset. (laughs) No, no. No, not the lemon posset one. Let's save that. No, I was going to talk about when we went to um, we went to a pub quiz that was all about <gasps> yes. trilogy films: Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, and um, The World's End, and Space. Mm-hmm. And we decided yes. to prepare for this pub quiz of you know Simon Pegg, Nick Foster. We were going to watch all of them back to back, which mm-hmm. is probably about six hours or something, isn't it? Um, yeah, <laughs> in my flat and. Um, <laughs> Alongside that, because The World's End is about a pub crawl, we were going to match them. Every time they had a drink, we had a drink. And we brought mm-hmm. in a tray of something like 30 shots. And every time they had one, we just picked a different shot. Oh, my God. How did we do in that pub quiz? I can't remember. I think every, like, everything we'd watched that day was ruined by the fact that we did like 50 shots in the night. Yeah. <laughs> we forgot everything. Bear in mind, like, just a disclaimer, in case my mum's listening, they weren't full 30% shots. We we did some l- lighter ones, like corkies and stuff like that. Oh, yeah, I think we mixed it up with, like, beer and cider and things as well. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just, like, 50 shots of tequila. No, <laughs> not on that occasion. Um, anyway, that was, that was a digression. I just wanted to say that, that balm means perhaps still... <laughs> Um, in some part of the north, you would ask for a balm when, you know, meaning a, a baffle. So, so, in fact, there's a Bolton pasty balm. It's quite famous in Bolton. Where you literally okay. put a pasty in a bread roll. Oh, my gosh. That's a Bolton That's balm. Just thinking about that is making my mouth dry. Well, have you heard about the Wigan kebab? Do I want to? Is yeah. it X-rated? Kind <laughs> <laughs> of. Um, it's... So it's very similar. They put a pie in a balm, in a bread roll. That's a wigging kebab. A pie in a balm. What's wrong with people? <laughs> you can't say what's wrong with the North. We're not allowed to. 
I love my beef. Only food, allowed but... to tag off the Midlands, London, and Wales. Those are the rules. It would make sense why they have so much gravy up north because they just put dry food inside dry foods. <laughs> <laughs> Dipped in gravy. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that was that was all I wanted to say about balm. Glad that went on a tangent. Um, <laughs> shall I get Shall I get back to some history? Because I feel like we're on safe territory when I talk about history, rather than anything yeah. that happened to us in the past ten years. I'm going to try really hard not to bring this down. So yeah, go on. All right. So the word yeast uh, <laughs> comes from the <laughs> well, already already. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to steamroll over you. The word yeast comes from Old English, uh, gist, and from Indo-European um, roots. It means, well, into the European root of yes, it means boil, foam, or bubble. So yeast yeah. has always meant kind of that, that balmy foam. And yeast microbes are probably one of the earliest domesticated organisms. So you never really know with this stuff because you've only got a certain amount of evidence to go go on and you have to use a bit of imagination. But the earliest archaeological evidence of fermentation is 13,000 years ago of residues of beer. And, you know, then it was kind of more like a gruel rather than a, a drink. And that comes from the Natufians. And the Natufians are really interesting because they were semi-nomadic. They sort of predate are records of humans settling down and getting into agriculture. So a lot of the other evidence we have, you know, is when people start growing crops from 10,000 years ago or so, um, and the kind of tools they would use there. So this is kind of like a bit of an outsider guess that maybe they would have kind of shared their yeasts. They would have, you know, brewed something again. Not, I know that was an unfortunate <laughs> phrasing, wasn't it? Um, you know, they would have kept the balm and made something else as they were semi-nomadic, but we don't really know whether that means that that yeast was domesticated or whether they were still just using wild yeasts. So is this like how people share sourdough starters? Yes, it's exactly like that. And I'll give another example of that later on as well. But yeah, I, I think it's kind of, it's, I think we could theorise that it probably is one of the oldest. Do we know what we think is definitely the oldest domesticated organism, by the way, by humans? Not a clue. The grey wolf. So your, your little doggies, ancestors. 15,000 years ago, we have records that we started domesticating grey wolves. So it predates agriculture, it predates um, any of the other animals. I think that's, you know, one of the reasons why we have such close relationships with dogs. Because Aww. it's that old. It's older than us growing wheat and so forth. Speaking of old dogs, they they turn the ripe old age of 77 on Saturday in dog years. Wow. What does that mean in human yeah. years? What is it? 11. 11. Yeah. Oh, little old men. They are old men. <laughs> um... Right, so anyway, that was a very long time ago to get us up to date a little bit. Um, it was in 1680 that they were first observed microscopically by the Dutch naturalist Anton van Leeuwenhoek. And at the time, they saw them, but they didn't think of them as living organisms. So they weren't really classified probably. They just thought, oh, they're globular structures of some sort. And they didn't necessarily know whether they would have gone in algae or fungi. So it wasn't really classified. It wasn't until 1837, which is quite a long time after they'd been seen, that Theodore Schwann recognised them as fungi. Um, so they are a fungi family. And then even though we sort of knew what they were, we didn't know that they were directly responsible for fermentation. We didn't really know how it worked. So, do you remember Eustace von Liebig? Do I? Useless. <laughs> he, he created the first Marmite precursor. So he was the one who thought that um, alcohol was produced by the decomposition of yeast. So he thought that's how it works. Uh, rather than, you know, them actually converting carbohydrates into alcohol. And it was Louis Pasteur who arrived to prove him wrong. Now, I love this story. Pasteur, he did a lot of things. He was, he was a smart man. He did all sorts of stuff. And he was teaching 
Um, and one of his students' father, I was going to say one of his students' fathers, that doesn't sound right. The father of one of his students um, asked Pasteur's advice about making beetroot alcohol because, you know, it was coming out too sour. There were problems with, you know, it being corrupted in the fermentation. And this is 1856. So he goes along to this local wine manufacturer and observes and takes notes and, you know, uh, looks at the microorganisms. And he published that yeast caused fermentation for the first time. And we cannot get fermentation without yeast, bless yeast, um, in 1858. And he also demonstrated at the, the same time that um, different microorganisms are what can contaminate the wine. So it can produce lactic acid, which makes the wine sour, which was the problem that the beetroot alcohol producer was finding. So it was in 1861 that Pasteur said, when the yeast is exposed to more air, less sugar is fermented. So there's mm -hmm. a lower rate of fermentation, um, and that's called the Pasteur effect. And then he also shows that these, this growth of microorganisms is what's responsible for spoiling beverages. So, you know, beer and wine and milk would be spoiled and people didn't know why. And mm -hmm. so he invented this process where liquids are heated uh, between 1600 degrees, which kills back most bacteria and molds. And that's pasteurization, as we would know it now. And it was applied to beer and milk. And then he, he published that in 1865 as diseases of wine. The contamination of beverages led Pasteur to think, oh, well, maybe it's not just there. Maybe it's not just beer and wine and milk. Maybe it can also be responsible for diseases in animals and humans. So mm -hmm. he proposed that you could prevent the entry of microorganisms into the human body to stop diseases developing. And then in the UK, Joseph Lister reads this this tract on the diseases of wine and how it could apply to humans and thinks about it and he comes up with antiseptic methods in surgery yeah. so he's the guy who was like ah if we um you know um wash instruments on our hands with carbolic acid carbolic soap then that will prevent disease from spreading and he tried it out on a, a young boy who'd like broken his leg um, and he dipped some lint into carbolic acid and tested it. And sure enough, the leg didn't get infected. It was a success. He was like, really ridiculed at the time, though, by a lot of his peers saying, mm -hmm. oh, that's stupid. Why should we? You know, I mean, it seems so stupid to us now, doesn't it? Why should you wash hands? Why should you keep things clean? But, um, <laughs> without him, it, it, it persisting, it wouldn't have happened. And the other interesting thing to, to relate back to drinks, Lister's, Joseph Lister's father, Joseph Lister, um, <laughs> was a... <laughs> a uh, sort of hobbyist physicist um, and microscopist. He, he um, worked on lenses for microscopes to make them better to observe microbes and all that sort of stuff. But he did all that in his spare time. His full-time job was that he was a port wine merchant. Oh, no way. Yeah. So the, the link between, you know, wines and yeasts and, um, you know, microscopy and surgery and sterilization, they were all so linked between Pasteur and Lister and his father and all this kind of thing going hand in hand. It's kind of wild to think that without the alcohol industry, we might not have discovered the thing that has saved more lives than anyone else, which is antiseptics. God, thank God for lush people. <laughs> <laughs> right? That's my point. <laughs> Getting to the modern age, I, I, I did say that Yeast had been discovered before we knew what fermentation was. So fermentation is 19th century. 18th century, we do actually identify that there are different strains of yeast that are involved in brewing. Mm -hmm. So I'll talk a bit more about these in a bit, but Saccharomyces cerevisiae and Saccharomyces carlsbergensis, um, there's another name for that, I'll get to that, <laughs> which are top and bottom fermenting yeasts were sold commercially uh, by the Dutch for bread making in 1780. That's mm -hmm. a long time before we know what fermentation is. And yeah. around 1800, the Germans are producing the cerevisiae in the form of a cream. Um, and that's the one that's used in ales and so forth. And in 25, they figured out how to turn that into solid blocks and remove the liquid. 
and then it goes through um, a filter press and becomes dry at the end of the 19th century. It takes quite a long time to go to the United States, for example. There's this exposition in 1876 in Philadelphia where they, they demonstrate, you know, the yeast to bake bread. But it isn't, it's probably the mechanical refrigerator that has the biggest impact, which was first passed in the 1850s, because prior to that, brewing and distilling was seasonal. Like you could only drink mm-hmm. when it was colder because it was more likely that your drinks would spoil in the heat of summer. So yeah. with having the refrigerator and with having commercially available yeasts, it meant people could make beers all year round rather than just between like September and May, which they were doing formerly. So 24-7, 365 beer in. Yes, exactly. And <laughs> it's inter- you, once you kind of understand that actually, it's interesting to look at what beers are known in different regions of the world, because if you think about um, ones that um, are, you know, need warmer fermentation, like ales, you see them being much more popular in something like the north of England, where it's yeah. get as warm, and so they can kind of tolerate, you know, doing that all year round for longer periods. But if we look at the popularity of lagers, which prefer the colder temperatures um, in Bavaria, what they would do is they would make it and then they would store it like on mountains, you know, under snow and stuff and just drink it throughout the summer by coming to reclaim it because it wouldn't spoil like the ales. Would. Mm-hmm. So you see like these different yeah. types of beer preferences essentially depending on your climate. So I did um, read that. So there's different types, lots of different types of yeast and mm-hmm. quite a lot of them are not tolerant to alcohol and can't be used in the fermentation process. Yes. And I also read that the majority of the yeasts lend themselves more to like a lager than they do an eel or a yes a heavier drink so i will i will get onto that now actually the different types because yeah it's it's had quite a taxonomic ride yeasts people sort of found them claimed them but they they breed they interbreed you know they um <laughs> they they breed by budding but also asexually and sexually so they're given to having hybridization um, all the time. So you, mm-hmm. you find all these different varieties and it's kind of hard to categorize them into a single you know, class, as we shall see. So the most kind of popular and well-known one, Saccharomyces cerevisiae. Um, Saccharomyces, by the way, is uh, Latinized Greek meaning sugar mold. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Cerevisiae means of beer. So it's the sugar mold of beer. Um, nice. But that's the one that we know has been used the longest. We find it, you know, in since ancient times. We find it in um, ancient Egyptian uh, baking instruments and pottery and all sorts of things like that. And we think it originally came from the skin of grapes. So you know when you get like red grapes or plums, something with dark skin, and it has a sort of yep. whitish powdery film over it. That's the yeast. Yep. Or the yeast at least makes up a large part of that. Mm. Um, so it comes from that skin, it's like naturally derived from there. And my favorite thing about the Cerevisiae is that it was the first eukaryotic genome to be completely sequenced. Um, Eukaryotic just means that the uh, the DNA DNA is contained within a nucleus, kind of like we have as well. Okay. Um, so it was in 1996 that it got kind of published in the public domain. It took 13 years and a billion dollars to do that. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, these days you can do a sequencing in about half an hour for about a hundred dollars. That's how far it's come. But I love that that was the first thing we chose. You know, because it's so simple. It's often used in in medicine and research because we can do a lot to it. We can sort of understand it as a single-celled organism. Um, It's the official state microbe of Oregon. (laughs) (laughs) I had no idea that... I want that on a T-shirt. Such a thing existed. (laughs) But yeah, it's because craft beer brewing is such a big thing in Oregon, they decided to, you know, reflect its impact by making it their official state microbe. But I don't know how many official state microbes are in the world. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the other one you mentioned about lager, and I previously called um, Saccharomyces carlsbergensis, um, is also Pastorianus. And that's because there was confusion as to it being two different types of yeast, but then, you know, cut to 1980s, bit more science, and they go, oh, it's the same thing. So what happened is um, Max Rees, this German guy in 1870, sort of found it as the yeast that was responsible for the production of lager and named it after Louis Pasteur, Pasteuriensis. No, I keep calling it Pastoriensis. Pastory, it, it, do you know what? Written down, it's Pastory Anus, and I'm trying not to say Pastory Anus. I've got a Pastory Anus. Exactly, because I'm just <laughs> thinking of like um, Italians with a lot of junk in their trunk. <laughs> you can actually buy, um, you can buy pasta in TK Maxx that looks like buttholes. So maybe it's that. Right. Pastory Anus. Yeah. I think let's just embrace it because I keep saying it wrong. It's because I'm trying not to say anus. Um, <laughs> pastory anus. Um, <laughs> so it's 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 a hybrid of um, uh, spaghetti and ass. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Cervicii and again another anus. Ube anus. Um, but yeah, he, he names after Pasteur. But around the same time, the Danish brewery Carlsberg, who we've already mentioned, um, has their yeast that they're using for their lager. And the guy who's working with them, Emil Christian Hansen, um, decides to name it after them, you know, Carlsbergensis. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't get around to it until 1908. So he's a good 38 years after pastory anus, um, which means that, you know, uh, taxonomic precedence, we should be calling it pastory anus, but people do still call it um, after Carlsberg, Carlsbergensis as well. So you find it used interchangeably. Carlsberg actually got the yeast from a Munich brewery called um, Spaten who mm -hmm. are delicious. I have had their beers. I have, in fact, a tankard next to me, which has Spaten written on it. Um, yeah, but they got it from them like way earlier in 1845. So it, taxonomy is the enemy of yeast, I have discovered while doing the research of where various things come from. Mm -hmm. um, one other thing just about the taxonomy thing. So as I said, it was it's a descendant of both the Cerevisiae and the Eubayanus which I'm just leaning into the anus, which was discovered. <laughs> oh I know, I know. Um, <laughs> it was discovered in Argentina, um, I think 2011, but actually we found it mostly in China, Tibet and Mongolia, and it's, it's one of the ancestors. What that leads us to think is probably that the interbreeding of those two yeasts happened somewhere between Asia and Europe. So the yeast had to be actively carried over. It doesn't go over in the air. Um, it gets transported by wasps a lot, by the way. But yeah, there was probably something that happened between Asia and Europe at some point that created this lager yeast variety. I'm really glad that I've learned that wasps do something other than act like idiots. Mm. I mean, what they did for wild yeast, so I'm crunching ice now. It's not a great thing for a podcast, but I'm doing it. What they do, um, what they used to do in um, uh, the codements was it, it could actually like live within them, within their body, you know, when they were sort of resting and hibernating and they would pass it on to their young as well um, through transfer. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it does need direct contact yeast and, and wasps are one of those ones that do that. I mean, wasps are po massive pollinators as well, so I don't want to, you know, badmouth wasps. They pollinate as much as bees do. And they... Yeah, but yeast. they've just got too much sass, haven't they? A bit too much sass. Still the yeast. <laughs> <laughs> right, should we talk about flavours? Flavour flaves. Um, just uh, one point on fermenting, mm. actually, that I've got. Um, now, I don't know how much truth is in this story, but if you do look it up, there are news articles about it. Some people say it's a myth, but it's there. It's online, so it's real, right? 
Um, so apparently they wanted to ban Marmite from prisons back in kind of like 2009, 2010, um, because apparently inmates were using it to brew their own like Marmite hooch. Mm. Uh, so now when I was making notes for this, my autocorrect kindly saved it as Marmite gooch, which is, which is going back to a completely start. Different, different use thing. Yeah, <laughs> when I was when I was rimming with Marmite. <laughs> um, but no, they called it the Marmite Mule, and they were apparently stealing it from the kitchen because uh, they realised all they needed was you know a bit of Marmite to start the fermentation progress with fruit, veg, bread, whatever mm. they could get their hands on, uh, and they'd put it in like empty soft drinks bottles with a bit of water. They'd obviously keep an eye on it and they'd be releasing the gas as and when needed. And um, the longer they could resist it, you know, the longer they could leave it, the stronger it would be. Um, And yeah, they'd just be brewing their own with a bit of Marmite and they would pour it through a sock or a T-shirt to get all the bits out. Mm -hmm. And that was the Marmite mule hooch that inmates were loving. But yeah, apparently... They had to ban Marmite. I don't know how much truth is in it, but they wanted to ban Marmite in prisons because inmates were getting pissed. <laughs> Look, if I was in prison, and I'm not going to tell you why I got there, um, I would do that. <laughs> I'd give it a go. Have to try, it? Bit of homebrew. Yeah. Can't be any worse than any of the things you've come up with. I was going to say, I'd... I'd probably rather Marmite Mule than that Prosecco I made. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, on that note, are you more inclined to be a top or a bottom? Uh, when it comes to yeast. Right, right, yeast. Uh, <laughs> I think I'm a top. Right. Had you down as well. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned this earlier, you stifled a sniggle. A sniggle? okay i mentioned this earlier and you stifled a snigger which was about top fermenting and bottom fermenting yeasts yeah it was not long after i'd said that i was going to try really hard not to bring it down yeah yeah, exactly and you you said that i laughed and i was like i can't laugh at top and bottom fermenting even though it was way funnier than yeast (laughs) (laughs) so let me break it down so it's not quite as funny. Let me introduce some facts. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, so top fermenting yeasts are generally used in ale, uh, stout, porter, wheat beers, that kind of thing. So the point is that the yeast rises to the top of the fermenter during fermentation. So it's called top fermenting. Mm-hmm. So it creates, um, and you know, try and keep your head about this, but it creates a thick yeasty head at the top of the... Um... Oh, You're doing it on purpose. <laughs> so for home brewers, um, it's really practical because they generally ferment at um, temperatures between 10 and 25. So it's kind of, you know, room temperature-ish, um, depending on the strain. Uh, mostly the ideal temperature is between 18 and 22 degrees C. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of easy to get a hold of any time of the year almost. Um, the lagers, on the other hand, um, temperature, you know, plays an, well, it plays an important role in both of them, but it's just that it's a much lower temperature. They prefer between mm-hmm. 7 and 15 degrees. And because of that, the yeasts don't reproduce as quickly as the ale and they tend to settle at the bottom before making it to mm-hmm. the top of the fermenter. And um, because lager yeast ferments at colder temperatures, it inhibits the chances of um, off flavors or other chemical products that can be produced in ales. So that's why, you know, lagers have sort of a cleaner taste to them. And, you know, you find that in lagers and pilsners and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So that's the main difference between top and bottom is where the yeast settles and that depends on kind of like how quickly and the temperature and all that sort of stuff. There's a couple of really useful terms actually to bear in mind when thinking about what yeast you want for your beers. So one is attenuation, which is the degree to which the yeast 
ferments the sugars in your wort, which I kind of really struggled to articulate earlier in this episode. <laughs> um, Yeasts so, and wort, it's, we're getting really bad now. <laughs> I know, right? So you, if, it's, um, if it's a low attenuation, so it doesn't ferment as much of your sugar, it would be lower than 72%. If it's high, it's 78% and above. So you're looking at in the 70s generally for attenuation of, of percentage of sugar to alcohol. And then the other one you want to think about is flocculation, which, mm-hmm. is, uh, which is just another way of referring to the clumping of the yeast cells into clusters, which happens during fermentation. So the rate of flocculation determines how quickly the beer is going to be clear. So high flocculating yeasts are going to sink to the bottom, like the lagers, um, and the low will kind of be nearer to the top. So those are a couple yeah. of useful things to bear in mind when thinking about like your lagers versus ales. But what really provides flavour to a beer? So the thing is, I when I first kind of went, oh, I like beer, I was aware of hops. I was aware of like different varieties yeah. of hops. And I think that's pretty much still where most of us are at. Like when you, look yeah. at, you know, what different beers are going on, you go, oh, where are the hops from? What hops are they using? But actually the yeast is so responsible <laughs> for a lot of the flavor yeah. that comes through. And that's because of esters. And esters are, they're the largest kind of component of the, of the flavors that make up your beer. They make it generally fruity. Um, and they're the reaction between alcohol that's produced during fermentation and acids, carboxylic acids, really, like carbon and oxygen acids. And when they combine, they create these esters. And they have different flavors depending on how they're constructed. So you get um, isoamyl acetate, for example, is when you get that flavor that's a bit like banana or pear drop. And when you get ethyl acetate, it's, um, it's a kind of light fruity and a little bit solvent. And then ethyl caprolate is like apples and ethyl coproate is like apples with a bit of aniseed. And then you've got phenylethyl acetate, which is like floral and honey. So depending on the kind of esters you produce, which is about the environment in which you're brewing, the type of yeasts and, you know, things like temperature and so forth, those are the different flavors you produce, which are your esters. And if you know what kind of flavor you want, then you can, you know, you can sign up, kind of work backwards and you go, right, well, I want a yeast that's going to produce that kind of ester. And I found all this at um, a useful website called beercrafter.com, which sells kind of like lists all the different types of yeast you can get like hundreds of different yeasts i spent ages just scrolling through it going oh which one would i want you tempted you're gonna start brewing now you're gonna if i had more space in my life <laughs> like physical space if i had a garage i would probably put fermenting equipment in rather than a car but living in a flat with a small kitchen probably not <laughs> yeah. i'd try fit it in somewhere mm-hmm. So with that kind of like investigation of yeasts being really important for flavor, and I think, you know, more than the general populace appreciates, it made me look at um, bars and breweries that are kind of yeast first, I guess, in terms of, in terms of the flavor. And I found that like, there, is, there is a resurgence in the past couple of years of bars that are really into mixed fermentation, as they call it. So not buying the commercially produced stuff that came about from, you know, late 19th century onwards, but yeah. looking for kind of active living strains from different communities, doing things that are seasonal and also leaving the, um, the fermentation vats open so that kind of natural wild yeasts can get into that rather than it being controlled. So there's like yeast of Eden I found in California that does that and flow in Mississippi. They mostly seem to be in America actually. But a lot of them say that they've taken inspiration from Norway for this. And that's because of Kvike. You heard of Kvike? No. Um, well, in Norwegian, Kvike just means yeast, really. Well, I think it's a particular dialect. But it's, it's essentially that, that tradition of we home ferment and then we keep 
um, the balm and the yeast going down the generations. So like you said earlier in the episode about, is it like sourdough starters being passed on? It's exactly like that. So because Norway had such a tradition of these, these farmhouse ales, and when I say farmhouse, I don't mean it's like, you know, a, a kind of pokey one. It's just the, that's this yeah. literally where they were brewed. You get all sorts of different varieties. Um, but because they did it in such a contained way for so long, it's become its own variety of yeast. Like it is, mm-hmm. you know, it does have common ancestry, but like you don't get Kvike yeasts anywhere else in the world. It's that's like amazing. it just came from Norway. And some of the incredible things about them, you know, other than the fact that it's a mix of wild yeasts, um, is that it ferments really quickly. So it can take two or three days and you've got, you've got your ale. And also mm-hmm. it can ferment like way up the temperature. It can ferment up to 40 degrees. So whereas like other yeasts would be producing kind of lots of off flavors and sour and all, you know, all of the things like that, it can totally tolerate it. And it comes out with these sweet, fruity um, aromas. So it's super fast. It's super, um, you know, tolerant of different temperatures. It's ideal one for home brewing, really. But I think it's fascinating that this, um, this sort of separate strand of yeast has sort of survived. And now it's being shipped off to the US because everyone's discovered that it's a wonderful thing. I want to start my own yeast now. <laughs> <laughs> In a healthy way. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you've got a garage, haven't you? I have. I could do it, but I don't have a good track record with alcohol production. <laughs> no, this is true. You don't. Um... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think I'll leave it to the professionals, to be honest. Yeah, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Mind you, it only takes um, two or three days. Maybe next time I come up, we could give it a go. Let's do it. We could like Please. imagine I could come up on Thursday evening. We could set it up, get it going by Sunday. We're on it. Oh my god, this is happening! <laughs> yeah, right. get back on that website, find the yeast you, you want. You set up all the equipment. I'll buy the yeast. <laughs> yeah, I'll I'll do snacks. <laughs> <laughs> what snacks are we having? Uh, I don't know, it's going to be salty. Pickles. Marmite and pickles. Marmite and pickles. (laughs) (laughs) Anything else in the world of yeast before we um, wrap it up? No, I think I I can't take any more yeast puns. I did actually think about something while we were talking about it earlier and I was trying to hold it together. Why haven't we had like a great British brew-off? Imagine the puns. Hmm. Oh my God, you're completely right. I know. There should be a Great British Brew Off. Mm-hmm. I guess it's kind of like, it would ha- you know, happen over a long period of time, but we've got editing. Yeah. Exactly. And I would watch that every week. I would be yeah. so into that. Yeah. That's a great mm-hmm. shout. Now we've put it out into the yep. world that the people can steal it, but... Just so you've heard it here first. Well, we've got a few weeks before this podcast goes out, so let's pitch it. All right, let's make it. We've got three weeks to make it. <laughs> well, apparently we could do it in three days, so let's just get yeah. through in. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, so our glasses have run dry, which means it's time to get that yeast problem seen to. Um, cheers, everybody. You can uh, stop leading into the anus now, Tim. I'm never going to stop leading into the anus. <laughs> I love how you had a mouthful when you said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm anus. <laughs> <laughs>